Uh, nothing like a little Billy Joel to get you going this morning. Got to get it right the first time. It is uh, great to have you with us. We're looking at that idea of doing things with such excellence that you're trying to get it right the first time because you want to serve people well. You want people to feel loved and cared for by the way that you uh, lean into them, the way you help them, the way you serve them. It's one of the things that's really important to us as a church. It's one of the things that we value as a church. Now, as I'm talking today, you can feel my voice isn't feeling particularly excellent. Uh, I was at a gig with Kenny. He asked me to sing for the first time. I sang for about five hours last night. It was amazing. Huge crowds. It was, well, not really. Actually, I just have the tail end of a cold. But anyway, um, today we're talking about that idea. And, and we know for many of you come to the church or maybe you're watching online, you love our services. You share our services with friends. Maybe you invited a friend to come to church. And you're hoping every week. That when your friends come in the door, they're going to hear something right. That there's no second chance to have that first impression. So we hope you're served well on the way in. We hope you're greeted well. We hope you enjoyed the bagels or the coffee. Because we believe that when you serve somebody well, when you love someone well, they feel appreciated, they feel cared for, and they feel valued. And that's why we do what we do as a church. So we create exploring environments. We're trying to comfortably connect people to God through the Bible in a community of growing Christ followers. And like a tailor shop, you kind of step in the door, you check out the merchandise, and maybe there'll come a time that you're ready to connect. And we hope that the message that we're communicating is being communicated in such a way that it, it makes you curious about the Bible and about this community of growing Christ followers. So I'm going to have to eat this while I'm talking, so <clears throat> keep my voice going. And, and today we're talking about two of our values. One of those is the value of excellence. And the other is the value of transformed lives. This isn't perfection for perfection's sake. I'm not a perfectionist. My wife will tell you I am not a perfectionist. But I love doing things well because it's a chance to serve people and value people. And people's lives are often transformed as they come face to face with realizing that God and the Bible can be real in their life. So one of the idioms that has really impacted me in my life is the idea that excellence honors God and it inspires people, right? It doesn't even matter the subject. When you see people doing things with excellence, you're, you lean in, tell me more about that, the way they tell a story, the way they paint a picture, the way they manage well, great customer service. You feel inspired when you are served with excellence. And the Bible says that all work matters to God. No matter what you do, when you do it with excellence, when you bring your full self, your full heart, your full passion, God is honored by that. And what that means is that you can actually live out the purpose of God in your life, not just by coming to Sunday or having a Bible study. During your work days, your 24-hour, one-on-one days as a parent, days as a, as a leader, you can actually honor God at the workplace, as a coach, as a friend, as a parent. It just infuses your life with purpose. Now, last week we picked up on a story of a guy named Paul. And Paul is a master philosopher. He's a master communicator. He's trained as both a religious leader and a lawyer. He knows how to articulate himself. He's very, very wealthy. He was born a Roman citizen. He came from a family that are tent makers. And he's going to come face to face with another very wealthy, very prominent man who believes something very different from him, a man named King Agrippa. And in the midst of this conversation, Paul is going to try and communicate with excellence the message of Jesus, 
that this skeptical, barely curious leader named Agrippa, who's trying to decide what to do with him, because the whole case is causing problems in the, in the world that day, and he starts to lean in and become curious about the message Paul has and the Jesus he talks about because he communicates it with such excellence. First, he's going to tell him why it matters. So a little bit about Paul. I'll show you on a map. Paul's born in this dot here in the top right called Tarsus. That's where he's born. Paul from Tarsus. He's not a follower of Jesus. In fact, he hates the followers of Jesus. Until one day at the second dot, Damascus, he has this encounter that transforms his life. Fills his life with humility, not self-righteousness. Peace, not anger and bitterness. And something changes that day and it reformulates the purpose of his whole life. We pick up the story at the bottom of this arrow here. He's in Caesarea Maritime. He's being held in prison because of the message of Jesus. And King Agrippa has just met him there, and they're going to decide whether or not Christianity is good or bad for society. And Paul's going to appeal to Caesar, which means he's going to go on a boat ride as a prisoner, if you follow that red dot, all the way to Rome in one of the most dangerous times of, of, of the ocean being up and down in the most long, long journey. And he's going to say, King Agrippa, I'm willing to endure the most difficult path to appeal to Caesar because I so want the whole world to know that this message of Jesus is is legitimate, it's real, it's life-changing, and it's not a problem for society. Nobody appealed to Caesar. Agrippa's immediately like, really? You're going to go on that journey on a boat during this time of year because you're trying to serve other people? Striking. The other thing is notice that isn't it true that you'll listen to a colleague more than you'll listen to a pastor? Like I say stuff, right? And you're like, well, Chad's supposed to say that stuff. He's paid to be a pastor. But if you meet a colleague that maybe believes in Jesus, maybe that's why you're here today. You have a friend who you're like, you know, I don't really believe in this God-Jesus Bible thing, but I met somebody who goes to work with me, or is on a soccer team with me, or who's professional. I can't believe somebody who I thought was smart believes in Jesus. And you immediately have more credence for them because they're a colleague. The same thing's going on here. Paul is going to explain to Agrippa that he also grew up with wealth and fame and prominence and education. He specifically says, hey, hey Agrippa, I I went to the best schools. I I studied on Gamaliel. We're like, well, who's Gamaliel? In those days, that was like saying I went to Harvard. He's like, listen, I've been to Harvard. I know philosophy. I've studied the best schools. And I got to tell you, I wasn't a Jesus follower anyway. You're not a Jesus follower? I wasn't a Jesus follower. In fact, I persecuted those Jesus followers. They weren't even called Christians. They were called the followers of the way. And I persecuted them to the death. And I've been on the best councils. I've been on the best boards. But something happened to me in Damascus. And my whole life got reaffirmed to a higher purpose. And Paul, because he's prominent, because he's wealthy, because he's a a colleague to King Agrippa, King Agrippa just can't ignore him. How did you go from where I am to where you are? So that's what we're going to look at today. As we do that, I want to give you kind of two aspects of excellence. My hope is that you can find a sense of purpose, that your 24-7, one-on-one life can be done in such a way that honors God, and maybe the way you live your life will make other people curious about what it is that motivates you to do what you do and to do it so well. 
Two things. Number one, Paul explains why it matters, reasoning. And number two, what it looks like, embodiment. This is what we need if we're persuading people, if we're selling, if in our marriage or as our kids. What, what do we do to tell people, why does this matter? Number two, what does it look like to have love and joy and peace lived out in your life? So, Paul takes this really tailor-made approach to Agrippa. What he says to Agrippa is not like what he said to Felix last week or to Festus. King Agrippa, he's Jewish. He's got a little bit of a religious background, but he doesn't necessarily believe any of it. He's kind of a cultural, culturally Jewishly exposed. And he's a, a very, he's a king, very, very prominent, very, very wealthy. And here we step into the courtroom where he has come to examine Paul. So imagine Paul standing before Agrippa, and uh, there's coins actually made. Go ahead and show the coin. So there's actually coins. Agrippa was very, very well known. From the time of uh, Julius Caesar on, the Agrippas were a household name, almost like today saying the Clintons or the Bushes. I mean, it's like everyone knew who the Agrippas were. And Agrippa I, King Agrippa, staying before him, is beginning to have these questions. So his, his, his dad, Agrippa I, and he is now Agrippa II, and he is now beginning to ask some questions. Why does this matter? What's going on? Why should I care? And Paul's going to say, let me tell you why you should care. What happened in Jerusalem a few years ago was predicted to the detail hundreds of years in advance. You're in charge. You can talk to the eyewitnesses. There's evidence for this. There's eyewitnesses for this. And this message means that God is real. It means that God came to earth. It means that you and I can find forgiveness and peace and joy. Instead of looking for the gods like Zeus and Demeter and all the Roman gods we have, God came to us. This matters, Agrippa. We've got to lean into it. So here's what he says. He begins a dialogue with him as he's talking to that day. Here's the first verse. <clears throat> Next slide. So Agrippa says to Festus, the guy who was in charge of the case before, hey, I would like to hear this man myself. If you're intrigued by him, I'm intrigued by him. I want to hear his case. Tell me what's going on. So the next day, when Agrippa, back one, next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come. So a little bit about Ber- Agrippa and Bernice. In the Greek-Roman world, marriage was about convenience and who could give you the most power. So Agrippa and Bernice are brother and sister. Yeah. Bernice married her uncle because it got her up in the caste system. She got a certain amount of power. And then her husband wasn't going to get her any farther in the caste system. So she kicked him to the curb. She's like, who do I know who's kind of a rising star who's going to get lots of power? Huh, my brother Agrippa. So she marries her brother Agrippa. So Agrippa and Bernice are there. They are used to power and using power to leverage, to exalt themselves. And you think Paul might say, listen, Um, not a good idea to marry your sister, it's unethical, it's immoral, it's not good for the genetic pool, you know, whatever. He doesn't address any of that stuff. And notice Agrippa and Bernice come with all kinds of pomp and circumstance. It's all about prominent people and prominent this. They have fame. They are household names. And Paul steps into that and says, hey, can I tell you my story? Okay, next slide. Here's what Paul says. Agrippa says to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretches out his hand and answered for himself. And look at how he presents his case. I mean, everything's on the line here. This is like a a brilliant opening statement of a lawyer. He says, first of all, Agrippa, I got to tell you, I find myself happy. Just like you said to Festus, I'm cheerful to be here. There's not a lot of people who've been sitting in a prison for several years who start off with, I'm happy to be here. He's got some kind of joy. He's got some kind of peace that Agrippa's not seen before. 
And I'm delighted to finally answer for myself because you've been hearing all kinds of hearsay and, and gossip about me. He goes on, concerning all the things I'm accused of, and I know some things about you, by the way, Agrippa, your household name. I know you are an expert in the law. You're like a Supreme Court justice. You know how the law works, and I'm delighted to be able to talk to you directly if you would just listen to me patiently. Just hear my case. And one of the words that Paul uses with Agrippa is the word he uses all through the book of Acts. He reasoned with them. He just stops and reasons with skeptics. He reasons with the curious. He reasons with the, the Hebrews. He re, reasons with the, the Gentiles. He doesn't preach at them. He doesn't talk at them. He doesn't condemn them. He reasons with them. And maybe you've never had anyone reason with you why Jesus might really be a person who really came to earth, who really did die. Why that isn't just a religion or a philosophy, it's, a, it's actually history. And there's evidence for his death and his resurrection. What we're trying to do as a church is tell you why this message matters and to reason with you. What are the reasons we believe God exists? What are the reasons we believe there's actually a solution to the problem of evil? What are some of the reasons why you should seriously consider the message of Jesus? And Paul just reasons and reasons and reasons and reasons with people. And he does it so well with evidence, with questions, with incredible articulation. The King Agrippa, who has no interest in this, starts leaning in and becoming curious because he delivers his message with cheer, with joy, with respect, and with evidence. Now, have you ever been around someone like that? I mean, aren't you inspired by people who communicate with excellence? And aren't you inspiring when you deliver your best work with excellence? Do you want to look back to two weeks ago, two months ago, two years ago and say, that's when I used to do my best work? No, you feel like you're in the zone. You're inspiring when you do your best work. It honors God and inspires people. Paul's in the zone. He is inspiring the skeptic to be curious about God because he's so cheerful. He's so articulate. He's so excellent. And the way he communicates and weaves his story and the scriptures together. God wants you to know the, the purpose that occurs in your life when you begin to do things with excellence, knowing that every day you can honor God in your everyday work. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that may even be a way that creates curiosity in the people watching you. Why does your marriage see different? Why does your parenting seem mixed with grace and truth? We either do the grace thing or the truth thing. We're talking about how the example came from Jesus. And people get curious. We're inspired and we're inspiring when we do things with excellence. Last year during COVID, I decided to learn how to sail. So we got on a catamaran. My wife and I and another couple, we sailed out to the Dry Tortugas. And if you've never been there before, I'd never heard of it before. It's basically the Pentagon before we had the Pentagon built by Thomas Jefferson. Amazing, amazing place. When our boat pulls up, our captain says, hey, there's, there's a lot of people who do tours here. Make sure you get Mr. H. Mr. H, yeah. So we found the tour guide, Mr. H. Why they call him Mr. H? You'll find out. Mr. H takes us on you know, your typical boring tour. You're in this amazing place, boring thing, boringness. Not this guy. He made this place come alive. I'll tell you just a couple stories. 
He said, guys, we're living in a time where there's a pandemic and our nation is more divided than ever. The same thing was true here at the Dry Tortugas at Fort Jefferson. In fact, it was a civil war. Florida had not decided whether they were going to go for the north or the south. They were still kind of leaning toward the north. And all of a sudden, things changed in the nation. And Florida decided to side with the south. However, this fort guards the entire gulf for the United States. So up in Boston, the north sends a boat. It's going to take them like 22 days going down the coast, trying to get all the way around Florida to get to the fort. Could they get there in time before Florida took it over and took control of the entire coast? Well, sure enough, they picked up the sails. They made it there in 22 days, and they arrived. The place was currently being rebuilt with a second story, so it was mostly just masons there. And as they arrived, they set up shop and began to see what kind of armament they had. Meanwhile, back in Florida, Florida, there's a particular sailor who says, I don't think there's any armament at Fort Jefferson. So what we're going to do is we're going to get on this ship, just me and my men. We're going to take over this thing, and I'm going to be the hero of the South. He gets on his ship, assumes there's nobody there to defend the place. And because of the way it's designed, you actually can't come straight at it. There's a coral reef. Unless you come in a spiral, you'll sink because of how tough the coral is. There's one specific way to get in there. And 100 cannons can aim at you at all times. So the whole time you're on your way down, boom, 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 boom. Well, this captain from Florida, he makes his way around. Nobody's shooting at him. Makes his way around. No one's shooting at him. He pulls up to the dock. I'm going to be the hero of the South. As he steps up to the front door, the doors swing open. And there's the Union Army who had arrived the night before. And the captain of the Union forces came out and said, we didn't blow you out of the water for one reason. What's that? So you can go back to Florida and let them know that Fort Jefferson is controlled by the North. If you come back or anyone else, we will blow you out of the water. Yes, sir. He stepped back onto his boat, went back around the spiral, and went home. And that's how Fort Jefferson was held by the North. His own, by the way. When the Union forces arrived the day before, they found out there was no armament, there were no cannons, and there were nobody to fire the cannons on the entire island. The whole thing was a giant bluff. And all of a sudden, I went from this boring tour to I am there. I am experienced. I am. Tell me more about that. What happened there? Then he went on to tell that in the corner of Fort Jefferson was the doctor who helped John Booth. After John Booth shot Lincoln, he helped him because he broke his leg. And he was thrown here for the rest of his life for helping John Booth. And we went to that prison cell and we could picture it and we told the story. He said there was an outbreak here in Fort Jefferson. And there was no doctors. And so this prisoner being mistreated and thrown in prison for things he said, I was just healing somebody. I wasn't on either side. But he saw all the people on the island beginning to get sick from an ancient pandemic. And he said, listen, I will help. And he came out of his prison cell and he began to help those who had him as captors. He began to take notes. In fact, his notes on the pandemic that hit this area were so important. Just a few years later, those notes got passed up to Washington, D.C., and they helped us deal with pandemics for the next couple of years all through the world because someone decided to love on their enemies. I came to the end of this tour, and he said, I think there's a lot to learn here at Fort Jefferson for us. 
How do we come together as a community in the midst of division? How do we come together in the midst of, of a pandemic? How do we, in the middle of all the different challenges in life, how do we find ways to love each other and to serve each other and to listen to each other? My man's guy's preaching. I suddenly was interested in Fort Jefferson. I'm suddenly curious about what happened. It was so inspiring. I have never given a tip to a tour guide in my life. I think I gave him 50 bucks. I'm like, that was amazing. And I found out they call him Mr. H, which stands for Mr. Hollywood. Because he brought his full self, his full research, his full love to that tour. And I was curious about what he had to say, interested in what he had to say, and I leaned into the application because he did it so well. God wants us to do that with our lives. To live our life with such excellence in how we serve, how we love, how we communicate what's going on in our hearts, that other people are curious about what makes us tick. That's what Paul did. Why it matters. I didn't think Thomas Jefferson's fort mattered at all. Suddenly I realized it mattered. So many lessons to tell. And Paul said, listen, this matters, Grippa, because it's true, it's predicted, it's real, it can change people's lives. The second thing he does is he shows them what it looks like. You know, what it looks like embodiment. Did you know as parents, we can say whatever we want, but it's what we embody and how we act that our kids pick up. They don't pick up our platitudes. They pick up our embodiment. You say we should say sorry, but I've never seen you say sorry to mom or mom say sorry to you. You say be kind, but the way you discipline me doesn't feel very kind. You see, employees, they recognize the disconnect between leaders who say one thing's important. It's written on the wall, all the values of the organization, but it's not happening down the hall. We as leaders, we as parents, we as coaches, we as friends get a chance to show people what it looks like to live out the life of our character and our values by embodying it, literally putting it into a bodily format. And Paul does that with Agrippa. He says, Agrippa, let me tell you my story. So, Bernice and Festus show up here to the prison cell, and they're like, all right, Paul, let's hear it. And Paul's going to say, let me show you how my story embodies the forgiveness of God. It embodies the story of God. It embodies what God can do with somebody who's very self-righteous and very, very proud and very, very arrogant. So, all right, tell me more. He says, well, let me tell you what it was like before I followed Jesus, which wasn't that long ago. He says, I hated them. So I was not like, you know what, maybe this Jesus thing might be true. No, I was the last person who would ever be a Jesus follower. I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus. And many other saints, I shut them up in prison. I received authority from high priests because I was a very kind of big wig. And they were put to death. I, I had people killed. I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in synagogue. I compelled them to blaspheme. Uh, I was exceedingly enraged against them. I persecuted them, chasing them even to foreign cities. That's how much I despised this movement. I didn't think it was smart. I didn't think it was true. And then one day I was on my way to Damascus. And I had this encounter. I had this real thing happen that I just can't even fully explain. But I'm in Damascus. And a light shines from heaven. And I see this light in heaven as it shines down upon me. I hear a voice saying, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? 
Who are you? I'm persecuting. I'm doing God's business. Stopping the people who don't believe the right way. He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And when you persecute people, you persecute me. And King Agrippa, what I began to learn is I was Jesus God, and he spoke to me. But Jesus is so connected to the people that follow him. His spirit lives in them. They have a peace. They have a connection to God that Jesus told me specifically about. And not only did that happen that day, I began to take Jesus seriously. He gave me a whole new mission for life. And he goes on to explain his kind of mission for life. He says, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to this heavenly vision. Therefore, having obtained from help from God, and I need some help, to this day I stand witnessing both the small and great. My job now is to live my life so small, great, don't have to be prominent, everybody matters. It used to be only people who are high in the caste system matter to me, the chief priest. Now, everybody matters to me, small and great saying no other things than which the prophets and Moses would have come, that the Christ would suffer. This is that Taylor approach. Remember, I told you that King Agrippa had some exposure to the Hebrew Scriptures. He didn't mention this to Felix or Festus, but to Agrippa, he says, you know a little bit about the Bible, right? Yeah. You know a little bit about Moses, right? Yeah. Let me tell you, you know Moses was written thousands of years ago, 1500 B.C. Here's specific things Moses said. He said there would be a Christ, God coming to earth. He said that Christ would suffer. It's exactly what happened in Jerusalem, the very area you're in charge of. There's evidence that this would happen. You're living during a time of fulfilled predictions. And he gave me a mission to tell people, Jewish people and Gentile people, that they could know the God who's come from heaven to earth, who did exactly what he predicted he would do by dying on a cross. And what's he doing? He's embodying the message. My story is a self-righteous, arrogant religious guy who needed to be forgiven of my sins. Somebody who thought it was all about power, it was all about the caste system, it was all about chief priests and power this. And I realized, oh my goodness, those were just things that made me arrogant and intolerable to the people around me. And now I'm embodying a whole different lifestyle. I'm trying to serve others. I'm trying to help others. I'm even going to appeal to Caesar that I'm going to go through the most dangerous, treacherous waters because if I can go to Caesar, I can appeal to him. All the Christians who are being persecuted, like I used to persecute them, can find freedom and religious liberty because I'm willing to put my own self in the line of danger. Now this speaks volumes. A guy who lived his life for comfort is now willing to take discomfort to serve others. Haven't you seen that? Bosses you worked for, companies you worked for, When they embodied their values, you leaned in more. Not only are you curious, you're willing to do more for a company who is willing to embody the values they said they valued. And you can see when there's a disconnect, right? Our kids know when it's a disconnect. Our employees know when there's a disconnect. I'll give you an example. My first church, I was down in Atlanta, and I had a senior pastor who was Scottish. And so I had just taken over the whole creative team. So I was managing about seven different employees and my job was to train everyone who ran the PowerPoint. There was PowerPoint back then, and there wasn't two screens. So literally, whatever's on the PowerPoint appeared on the screen. So the minute this, the thing, there was no, like, you know, working off something offline. Whatever's on there is on there. Well, he never, our senior pastor never prepared his messages until Sunday morning, the day of. And he was still working on his PowerPoint in his office. Services started at 10, and he would show up with his disc, little floppy disc, at 9.50, Hand it to my volunteer team, 
I had like four people I'd trained. They had to slide it in in about two minutes, put it up, get ready to go, and go. And so he'd said several times, you've got to train these people. He's Scottish. You've got to train these people, Chad. I have trained them, but if I could have more than 10-minute margin, it would help. No, no, no. Well, he talked about grace and excellence and good systems and loving people well. <laughs> well one day he showed up, and the service had already begun. It was 10.02. He runs into the room, hands the floppy disk to one of my volunteers. This is my slide. And so they're waiting for somebody to pray during the service so they can quickly hit escape, not have everybody see it, put his thing in, and then immediately he's up on screen talking. So he gets up to talk. My poor volunteer goes to the next slide. And the first slide that he created comes up there. And he looks at the slide. And just horror comes over his face. And he's like, someone's messed with my slides. Oh, my goodness. He had used, we didn't have networks back then. He had used a font size called Western font. Our computer didn't have Western font. So it went to the next W in the list. Wingdings. His entire PowerPoint presentation was wingdings the whole way through. He's screaming from the stage about how people have messed up his slides. And I'm like, you know, we might talk about grace at the church. We might talk about loving people at the church. But when you get angry and frustrated and slaughter a volunteer on stage, I'm not sure I want to work here or know about your Jesus. So anyway, I end up training my, my volunteer team. I said, there's only so much you can do. And then I invited my boss to come speak here about 10 years ago. And I said, listen, if you want PowerPoint, you've got to have it ready by the Wednesday before you speak. Well, John, I can't do that. Well, then you won't have PowerPoint. But I have to have a PowerPoint. Well, they need it by Wednesday. Why? Because when I worked under you, I learned that we serve people who work for us best when we give them prep time. And ultimately, I had to invite him back because he couldn't meet our deadlines. Because something happens. When you're on the receiving end of bad planning, you're not served well. You feel like the people above aren't accommodating for how you can do your best. You don't lean in. But when you feel like, hey, people understand, my parents understand, my boss understands, the company understands what I do and why it matters, you lean into that. So here's my encouragement to you. If you've been hanging around Horizon for a while, I hope you feel the effort we put into these services. We hope it honors God every weekend. But we hope it inspires you to be curious. To say, why would people put so much time into talking about the Bible? This might be important that we share from our lives. I want you to try it on by living this out. I want to try on what you're talking about. See if it might fit. See if it might be true. See if those predictions you talked about really did happen. Try it on by giving. What if I gave to other people the way you talk about God giving to other people? What would a giving, generous lifestyle look like? I want to try that whole serving people who don't like me, serving people who, who disagree with me the way you're describing it. Look what this final conversation is between Paul and Agrippa. It's really fascinating. For the king, is Paul still talking to Agrippa? For the king, before I speak, you know these things. The facts I'm saying about Jesus of Nazareth, him living, actually living, actually dying, actually raising himself from the dead, you know these things. This is your backyard. None of these things escaped your attention. Since none of this was done in a corner. Christianity wasn't like some corner. This was right in the heart of the Roman Empire in the area this guy's in charge of, Agrippa, of well-known historical proportions. This is the guy. He appeals to the evidence for him. King Agrippa, 
I even know you got some religious background. You believe in the prophets. You know what these predictions were. You've got the facts on the ground, and you've got the predictions from the past. And he presents this so passionately that Agrippa says, Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. The excellence has just got me curious. And then Paul says something I quoted last week. Paul says, well, I wish everyone had what I had. Well, except for maybe these chains. I don't necessarily like being in prison. He's got a sense of humor. He's got wit. He draws people in. I want you to try it. Maybe you've never tried looking in, investigating who Jesus is. Maybe that's your next step. Maybe you have investigated, but you're not living it out. You're not serving and giving and working in your life in such a way that the excellence, not perfectionism, but excellence, inspires people to want to know what makes you tick. What if every day you could bring that full self to bear in what you do and create curiosity in others? I'd like you to hear what that looks like from a friend at our church who experienced the curiosity of discovering Jesus for the first time in her life. Can we give a warm horizon welcome to my friend Carolyn? Carolyn, come on down. <clears throat> hey, thanks for being here. Hi. Well, tell us a little bit about your story because you guys had a vow renewal recently that I, about six months ago, I got a chance to attend. And I was so amazed. You had people of different faiths there. Uh, friends from different backgrounds there. And you, you guys were so authentic about describing not a perfect life, but a difficult time in life, how you found God and how it really showed up in the, the challenges of life. So tell me a little bit about kind of your journey with God. Right, thank you. Uh, hi, I'm Carolyn. And yes, that's uh, Jeff, my husband, and my family. And uh, we celebrated 35 years together because God is so good and God saved our marriage from divorce. And I know we look like a happy couple now, but many years ago we were not so happy. And uh, just the stressors of life, right? It happens in all marriages. Uh, Jeff worked for P&G, so we had moved a couple times. We had preemie twins that were born uh, at 32 weeks. And uh, we had a passing of my brother. And just we had no support right? We had really no family that was really there, and we didn't share our problems with our family. And we didn't have a church family. We, we had nothing but each other. So we tried it, just Jeff and I, and we couldn't make it work. I, I didn't respect him. Uh, we really just didn't like each other. And, and, and so we talked about divorce, and Jeff said, let's try counseling. Mm. So we tried that, and uh, Jeff said, no, this isn't working. So then one day I said, you know what, let's try this church down the street. It's a beautiful church. You know, when all else fails, you try God. When, yeah. when you're at the bottom of your pit, you know, you've tried everything else. Let's just see what God can do. So uh, we went to church, and uh, then I met with a pastor one Saturday and was presented the gospel, and a light bulb went off, and I'm like, yes, I want that. I want to live that life. So yeah, and, I, I, and I remember how yes, you shared it. You I'm said sorry. it was almost like the associate pastor said, imagine listing all the things you've ever done that you've done wrong on a list, and imagine God could forgive all of them. Like when you say the gospel, that's what you mean, that idea that everything you've ever done could yes, be forgiven. It, it's, it was, uh, 
that's all I really remember because a, a lot's happened in life. But he, he had like this pretend chalkboard and he said, what if you listed all of your sins on here? And I'm listing them on this imaginary board. And he said, you know what? If you give your life to Christ, God can erase all those. And I'm like, yes, I want that. I want to be forgiven. I, I want to start fresh. I don't want to remember the past. I want a bright future ahead. So, yeah. I, yeah and it I wasn't did. like, you said, it wasn't like you guys didn't want, everybody who gets married doesn't want to get divorced. It was yeah. just the kind of the pressure of having twins, starting a career, just kind of normal stuff kind of started to weigh on you guys. Yes. And you were trying to kind of find your meaning from each other, but you're both kind of empty. And so God's showing you how to fill each other up so you had something to give. Yes. And so you come out of that, and what do you start doing with the Bible and God to figure out how you can give back to your husband where God starts working in your marriage? Yes, I learned early on that you can find the answer to everything in the Bible. So I, I researched in the Bible, what does God say about uh, what am I supposed to be as a wife? What is my role as a wife? Uh, respect my husband. What is, what is my role in marriage? What is... Uh, just what, what kind of person am I supposed to be? Hmm. And so I just looked through the Bible and I found examples of what I was supposed to be. I was supposed to let Jeff lead. I was supposed to let Jeff be the head. And, and I had always just kind of taken care of the home and led and stuff. So it, I had to do a lot of praying that God would let me step back and just let Jeff lead. And even if he made mistakes, it, it had to be okay because God had made it that, that Jeff would be the head. The husband was the head. And I just prayed for Jeff's wisdom because all of us need wisdom. And the, the Bible says if you want wisdom, ask for mm. it. And Solomon asked for it. Sure. And, but, so uh, instead, of a, instead of a power struggle of kind of who's in charge, it became yes. more, more of a partnership together. Yes. And you saw God start to work. And I remember at, at that day we were at the vow renewal. You're like, hey, uh, marriage counseling didn't work. We tried Jesus and it kind of did work. So suddenly you both have this forgiveness. You both start learning how to serve one another, how to adapt to one another. And then it'd be like, hey, that'd be great if it was magically over. But then you have another challenge. You're going to go through infertility. And tell me about that journey. Yeah. Can I add one point to that though? Just one point. Jeff and I also decided to forgive each other, Hmm. right? So we met Hmm. one day and we said, you know what? Let's just forgive each other and move forward. Don't bring up the past anymore. The past is the past. Let's go forward. Let's believe in God and Jesus and move forward with this. And, and I think that's why, you know, people told me, and it may be true for you, that being able to forgive someone else, it's not because they deserve it. It's because God forgave you. So that's yes. where the power comes from. Because I've been forgiven so much, I can yes. forgive someone else who's hurting me. Is that true? Is that true exactly, for you? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, uh... All right, so fast forward to the next phase then, so... Oh, yeah. And so then we moved back to Cincinnati, and I wanted just one single little girl... And uh, so I, I prayed that God would either put the desire on Jeff's heart or take it from mine. And Jeff said, let's, let's try. But uh, we tried for a little healthy girl, and I couldn't get pregnant. I tried praying for two twin girls, couldn't get pregnant, uh, a single boy. You know, I went through the whole thing, eight months, couldn't get pregnant. Sure. And finally I said, God, I will take whatever you give me. Give me whatever you want. Mm. I was so desperate. And... Uh, then I got a phone call one day saying, uh, because I was 36 and I had testing done, your, your uh, child is going to have Down syndrome. So you were pregnant, so, so you got pregnant. Oh, I got pregnant okay. then after, yeah. And, uh, and, I, and he said, uh, but if you want to abort, you can. And then he said, oh, by the way, it's a little girl. 
Mm. And I'm like, oh, well, okay. So, mm. Chad, I'll be honest with you. I, w- I was a little bit uh, distraught over this news sure. because we'd only been Christians about three years. And I thought God and I had this thing going on where he loved me now and I loved him. And it wasn't supposed to be this way. Yeah. Right? And so it's just one of those things where... When we adopted my son, Quinn, it was the same way. I felt like, you know, we're finally willing to adopt. And and the one thing we didn't think we were prepared for were special needs. And I remember, oh, my goodness. And I was a Christian for 30 years by then. And I remember wrestling with that. Well, it's the whole thing about having those yucky feelings inside that Mm -hmm. you don't want to share with anybody. That's right. And, you know, it's just it's feeling bad about that Mm -hmm. and just everything. And... uh, yeah, it was a very, very hard time in the beginning, but then uh, one night we had a meeting at church, and I shared my true feelings with these women, and, uh, you know, they got out of their seats, and they came up on the stand where I was, and they laid hands on me and prayed for me, and I thought, you know, that is so amazing that these women who barely knew me at this church mm. loved me enough to to lay their hands on me, and that's mm. when I decided that I really love women, and, and I want to serve yeah. women, and I just think women are amazing. And that's kind of a religious term, uh, laying your hands on. So sometimes it means, you know, so laying your hands, uh, if you're not really, it basically means somebody kind of putting their hand on you and praying for you. That's kind of what that means. It's like, hey, we love you. We're here for you. It's almost like somebody, you know, putting their arm around you or hugging you if you're not Oh, well, that, that was term. the first time it had ever happened to me. So, yeah, yeah that yeah. was quite an experience. But, but God is just so good and faithful, and he... Uh, he had a better plan than the plan that I had. The, mm. the blessing that Angela is to our family, mm. it, it, it's been amazing. And, and I always tell Angela, I said, Angela, if God came to me today and said, I can make her typical, would you like that? I would say no, because I think God made her perfect. And I think mm. God made her perfect for our family. We're all just a little bit more appreciative and compassionate on people with special needs Angela helps me to see people for their heart, not their outside appearance. So, I mean, I cannot express enough how God has just blessed me, blessed my family, mm-hmm. and just it, it amazes me what he has done for us. Wow. And I, I just feel so unworthy at times. Mm-hmm. Well, that really touches me hearing you say that. Well, I don't know where you are in your journey, but when you hear people talk real life, and how God can show up in real life, whether you're going through a marriage. We all look good from a distance, but whether you're going through a marriage challenge or whether you're going through an uh, infertility challenge, whether you're going through a, a challenge where you feel alone, you know, God wants you to know that uh, he wants to be there for you. Mm-hmm. And kind of what you prayed that day in the pastor's office was, God, I want your forgiveness, and I want you to begin to change my life. And mm-hmm. I want to lead you in a prayer, and maybe to do the same thing. And I want you to hear the band hear this next song, because this next song is almost like God calling out to you, wherever his circumstance you're in, to say you don't need to worry, because I'm with you. I want to pray for Carolyn for each one of us. Father, thank you for uh, the work you've done in, in Kenny's life. Thank you for working in the midst of uh, the uncertain and the mysterious and the challenging. Thank you that your plans are better than ours and that you've called us to be people who serve, who love well, who serve well, who give well, who embrace people well. And Father, I ask for each person here, who might be interested in that, God, that you would draw near to them right now and just whisper to them, I'm real, invite me in. And if you invite God in, just simply say that in your own heart. Say, God, I want that forgiveness. I believe. Come and change my life.
Teach me how to forgive and how to live. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much. Well, we want you to live with that kind of a sense that your father can tell you, don't worry, I got it covered. Just lean into me. I can only forgive you, but I can lead you as well. I hope you've enjoyed our series on tailor-made, what it looks like for us as a church, personally tailored to each person. And one of the ways we do that is with a giving tree. So if you want to help us kind of serve and kind of embody what we talk about, on your way out today, you'll see our giving tree. There's little ornaments there. It's an opportunity for you to give to people in our community. We work with several organizations, City Gospel Mission, Interparish Ministries, and Happy Church here locally. And we put our money where our mouth is, which is every, all year long this is going on. But during these seasons, you as a family, you as a couple, grab one of those ornaments. All the instructions are on there to bring that back. Then for the next two weeks, we'll focus on our global uh, initiatives. We work with Belize Partners. We also work with Back to Back all over the world. It's your opportunity to kind of take the things we're doing and whether you are still you know, curious about Jesus or skeptical about Jesus or fully devoted about Jesus, let's be the kind of people who embody generosity and kindness and serving other people. And next week, I can't believe it, we're starting our Christmas series. That's right, Christmas Kaleidoscope starts next week, and you'll start hearing about our Christmas Eve services and a special candle, candlelight service we have planned and a, a whole caroling service we have planned. Lots of neat stuff all starts next week. Thank you for coming, and we'll see you all for Christmas next week. See you then.